my definition of mindset is not this kind of loose thing of it's an idea or it's a categorization of you as a person being you know open or closed or growth minded or whatever it's how you make sense of yourself in the world welcome back everyone to the geeks geezers and googleization show the home of googleization nation where we talk with hr and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology business and people here are your hosts ira wolf and jason cochran Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization, where we talk about some of the craziest shift going on in the future of work. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. Thank you for joining the show each and every week with us as we tackle these converging pieces around us. Everything's shifting, as Ira said, around technology, business, and people. And if you haven't done so, we'd love for you to go out, check the show. Um, and subscribe on your favorite platforms, whether it's podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, or even YouTube as well. Please do so. We've got a great conversation lined up today, don't we, Iron? We absolutely do. And um, we need to get ready. Everyone needs to get ready for another episode that's bound to have you wishing the conversation didn't have to end. Because that's how I felt when I was first when I first heard and was introduced to today's guest, John Gomes. I uh, CEO of a company called Outside. We'll hear more about that. And he's also a New York Times bestselling author. And he's here to talk about his latest work, Leading in a Nonlinear World. We're going to talk about what a nonlinear world is because I know a lot of people get confused with that. Um, but with a title uh, like that, it's just the tip of the iceberg because the book really goes a lot deeper into well-being strategic and innovation mindsets for the future which is the subtitle of the book uh, i found it is a trevor a treasure trove of some of the favorite themes that we've had on geek skeezers and googleization uh such as leadership in a vuca world well-being mindset and even we'll touch on purpose and neuroscience uh jason i don't know if you if if you i uh, know you probably uh, realize this but over the last uh, six weeks, we've had three neuroscientists on the show. So uh, it's quite a change from, quite a shift from where we were four or five years ago. I was talking to that right before the show uh, when we were focusing mostly on HR tech. Now we're talking on brain tech. The timing couldn't be better for this because just yesterday, uh, my innovation and entrepreneurship class students presented their final projects for the semester. And I told them at the beginning of the semester that the class was more about the entrepreneurial mindset than the business of entrepreneurship. But no matter how much I tried, the recurring theme that kept coming out was that success was tied to grit, passion, and perseverance. And while that's true, I had to keep reminding them how most startups fail and that those founders of failed businesses also exhibited grit, passion, and perseverance. I struggled to get them to cross over from thinking about replicating the behaviors of entrepreneurs, what entrepreneurs look like to us from the outside, to thinking about how and why entrepreneurs became successful financially, physically, and emotionally. And it's a bit of a nuanced approach, but uh, John really is going to help us crack that code today because the book's brilliant and I just love listening to him. 
but before we get to John, it's time for the perfect labor story. And this is where I get to point out a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. And while preparing for today's conversation, I received a message on LinkedIn about an article I posted about eight or nine months ago, and it relates perfectly to today's topic. The journalist at the time asked me, is there a change in management's willingness to talk about mental wellness, mental health, and well-being? And my answer was quickly yes, because you hear lots of talk about it. Uh, I thought, in fact, I told her that I thought 2023 might go down as the year of wellness. Because at the time, there were a few studies that just came out, and one revealed that as many as 83% of employees believe that well-being is just as important as their salary. 77% said they would consider leaving a company that didn't focus on well-being. Uh, and both those stats, by the way, were according to Jim Pass's State of Work-Life Wellness Report. And then a Microsoft study had come out and said that 48% of people left their job because of mental health issues or lack of work-life balance. Uh, and, but despite all those trends, Gallup's found that only a quarter of workers think that their organizations are doing enough or care about their well-being. So here we are in the final days of 2023. And what I can say is that 2023 was definitely the year of talk about employee wellness. But the tough questions still go unanswered. And while talking about well-being and mental health in the workplace has finally gotten the attention of the C-suite, I wish I could report has gotten the funding or the commitment it needs. So hopefully today's conversation with John Gomes will change a few minds, or should I say a few mindsets. So it's time to bring on our guest today. I'm really excited about talking with John about leading in a non-linear world. So let's welcome John to the stage. Welcome, John. Hi, Ira. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Great. It's good to have you, John. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, you're in the UK, so a few hours ahead of us, and uh, hard to believe that we are at the end of the year. So. Let's just dive in and get started. Um, first, talk a little bit about your background. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I sort of gave some of the cues away, um, but you know, you've been passionate about neuroscience, but how did you get interested in that? Uh, and then how did it lead to um, your company outside? Yeah, well, I, I started, I trained as a, as a neurochemist and neuroscientist. Um, couldn't see myself um, back in the early 80s in a lab for the rest of my life um, and and fell into consulting, which I seem to have, um, you know, kind of natural ability to do. Um, and I, I suppose halfway through my career, I um, gravitated back to it. I got back into that whole area and started working in a hybrid kind of space between science, high-performance sport and corporate work. And uh, it's carried on from there. And I, I guess the, the. Sorry, folks, we lost John just for a minute there. He'll be right back. Well, just from what he shared right there, um, I mean, to go from like the neuroscience work in the lab to consulting, there have to be some pretty interesting parallels in terms of how you view people and how you view businesses and those interactions based off of 
what you learn from from being in the lab and neuroscience. And like you said, we've had several neuroscience experts on here recently. And I love the way that you put it earlier um, in the opening statement there, Ira, that the show has kind of evolved over the years from when you started it five years ago from HR tech. to now we're talking about brain tech because ultimately that's what business is all about is are we setting people up for success in terms of being able to, to work in the grain of what they're doing? So I'm excited to hear John um, dive into this and provide provide some more of that perspective. John, it's good to have you back. I don't know what I went there. Sorry. Um, oh, no problem. It's got a mind of its own, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So just, um, yeah, very briefly, um, started studied in science, moved into consulting, um, and then kind of looped back in. And I suppose the the thing that's been the kind of thread that's run through this is about how people change in very demanding circumstances. And the bit that was missing for me the whole time was this kind of maniacal focus on strategy, ideas, and behavior. And watching it fail repeatedly uh, or fail to live up to the real expectations. And something that you know, sort of really galvanized me when I was working in Silicon Valley for a long time was just how um, a shared kind of mindset and culture, which is so strong, could be so effective. Um, and watching organizations being able to, to do impossible things in high degrees of uncertainty and understanding, you know, there was something there. And so I tried to decode that uh, through many different lenses. And neuroscience suddenly started to, to provide some real answers. And that's where it all started for me. So let's go back to the title of the book. And one is what what prompted you to write this book and who did you write it for? Well, I, I wrote it for leaders of all types. Um, it was actually a question that someone, you know, who, who's the book really for? And it made me think hard that I wanted it to be children as much as it was my clients because the world that we now live in, particularly in the last six years, has become believably and volatile, that VUCA word that you know we all use so much, it started to become a bit of a cliche and then all of a sudden it's like, no, it's real. It's, um, you know, it's, it's routinely like this. Can you hear us, John? How are we doing? Yeah, I can hear you okay. clearly. Okay. So yeah, we'll try that. And if not, if it continues to go, maybe we can just shut your your you can shut your camera off and we'll have at least the audio. So yeah. Good. So okay. uh, let's pick up from there. Um can describe, you know, when you when you say nonlinear, um I, I how could you explain that to someone who uh I, I guess is struggling with change? I mean, I I know we get it. Uh we talk yeah. about exponential change and accelerating change. But people then always go back as well. We've always had change and people have, you know, struggled with that forever. But this is this is different because not we, we are living in this nonlinear time. We're we're off, you know, we're, we're off the scale. Yeah. So the linear approach to change is that you you start with a set of assumptions that you actually know what the change is. We're here at this point and we want to be here at this point. And the change process is really about just going from A to B. It's planning forward based on a set of assumptions that we know what we're doing, we know what the change is, is going to be, we know what's required to make that happen. And really what we require is 
amazing communication, great project management, a lot of determination to do it, and we'll get there. The problem with that is that many of the problems that we now face are completely things that we're doing for the first time. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know how to do it. Um, you know, if you ask how you're going to build a business around AI or how you're going to build a culture, um, intergenerational culture, how you're going to uh, create new business models when you've had one business model for 30 years, you don't know what you're doing there. You might you can learn from various people, but you know the, the, the level of uncertainty is very high. So you need a completely different way of approaching that. Um, that breaks with all of the traditions of the kind of plan and act approach to things. And that, that, that is fundamentally what many organizations are faced with. And it leads to two problems. One is that people are routinely feeling exhausted by the, you know, the, the clamor, the demand, the rising demand and uncertainty. And the second is that they're increasingly feeling uh, out of the depth. And the number of CEOs uh, I coach and work with, the number of senior executives would say to me, you know, I don't know if I know what to do here. I really, you know, feel out of my depth. And that is a change. I haven't experienced that in my career uh, before. That's that's a big change. Follows up uh, real closely to what we talked about last week. We had Aaron Koppel uh, and we were talking about Agile. And, and in a similar vein, he talked about that people are used to living in, and solving problems through a simple and, and complicated um, uh, lens. Uh, that's the yeah. model. And, you know, we're living in a chaotic, um, which there is really no good model for that, but um, we're living in a complex world. And uh, Bob Johansson, uh, I, I quoted this last week, too, because it, it's so relevant. You know, he had said years ago that uh, we're moving from a world of solving problems to a world of dealing with dilemmas. And, and there aren't any good answers. And in fact, we don't always have all the information, which is that uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity uh, that we're dealing with. And then it doesn't stay still. It's, no. but by the time we get, we think we got our head around the problem again, oh, now I see this, it's changed. The, the conditions have changed. Uh, so a, a lot of this, and, and even Aaron talked about mindset. Um, there's, you know, Carol Dweck talks about mindset. Uh, everybody's talking about mindset. You have a, a really, you you say that people are asking the wrong question when it comes to describing a mindset. Yeah. All right. So I don't want to be critical of anybody because I think, you know, this is a, a supposition that I've been testing at scale and I largely get very positive feedback around it. So what I've asked, I don't know, 10,000 people what what they mean by mindset because it, it is a word loaded with meaning for people and it's used everywhere and most people come up with a fairly fuzzy indistinct you know they they know what they think they mean by it but until they try to express it and then they don't really know what they mean so it's a word um that that is varied and fuzzy but there are two kind of primary um ways in which they describe it one is a, a sort of dictionary version of it which is the attitudes and beliefs that somebody has. And the other is completely different, which is a mental model, an idea that they hold. So those things are very different, but they're actually part of what a mindset is. But the bit that's missing from that, and you can see this most closely when you're looking at situations that are either high stress, 
high uncertainty, high conflict, which is the role of emotions and the role of our bodies in relation to how we make sense of things. So my definition of mindset is not this kind of loose thing of it's an idea or it's a categorization of you as a person being you know, open or closed or growth-minded or whatever. It's how you make sense of yourself in the world. And that kind of kernel, it's not your experience and it's not your skill sets and your personality and values and so on. And nor is it your identity from a uh, professional perspective. It's the thing, kind of broker that sits between your inner and outer worlds and how you respond to change and uncertainty. And the the best way that I have come to, to kind of describe this at a simple level, it's how you feel, think, and see. And how that generates moments, instances of what you know, what you doubt, what you deny, what you ignore in a situation. And this then becomes a very actionable way of thinking about change. And there's a lot of research that suggests that when you operate at a, a change level as opposed to behavioral level, you're gonna be at least four times more successful in personal and organizational change. And the reason for that, the real reason for that is that what most change initiatives are doing is missing a vital equation. Let me give you an example. When corporate organizations try to teach people to become entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, um, they do the same thing that most people that are studying this fall into the trap of, which is they don't talk about the mindset of the entrepreneur at all. All they do is they talk about the ideas that these people use and the observable behaviors. And the problem with that is I can watch somebody, I can watch an athlete performing all day, but I can't do it because I don't know how they do it. I don't know what's going on in their head. And the distinguishing you know, differential is not what they do, it's why they do it. And the way they do it is because they look at uncertainty and risk differently. They're able to pull those things apart and actually make decisions based on things because of how they feel, because of the assumptions they make about those things that can feel completely natural to them. And if you can understand that, you can teach other people how to, to think and to feel like them, then they can start to, to understand how to become an entrepreneur from the inside out. John, I want to go back to what you were sharing around your time in Silicon Valley. You made mm. a statement that was really fascinating to me. You were, you were talking about how it was the the groups, the organizations that had the shared mindset and their shared culture that were doing extraordinary things. Yeah. Can you help unpack that a little bit for us when you're talking about shared mindset and shared culture? What were those companies doing different from others that maybe didn't have that? Well, I think... Um the downside of it is that a lot of that was generated by people who were very similar to each other in terms of how they, they thought. So there was a kind of collective group thing. So if you want to kind of like unpack it, um, a lot of people who thought the very same way, had the same logic, had the same um, training uh, in terms of how they experimental. So the kind of provisional mindset that a scientist holds about we're always wrong. Uh, we're, you know, Whereas in, the, in a kind of typical corporate, everybody's trying to be right um, and defend being right. And that makes an organization very vulnerable. It's great when it, it, it has periods of stable, stability and success, but that's always preceding you know, the decline. Whereas a Google, a Facebook and stuff like that, those organizations have a continuously provisional approach to, 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 to ideas and answers. So they're, they're always wrong. And that's okay, that's acceptable. So 
Um, you know, Amy Edmondson, who's, you know, the pioneer of psychological safety research, her recent book, you know, one of the comments she made um, last week was really telling, and I share this, which is that this notion of fail fast, learn fast is very sloppy in terms of what most organizations mean by it. They don't mean that at all. They mean, don't fail, succeed, you know, but do it quickly. <laughs> um, so because they don't actually understand what it takes to do that. Um, well, those organizations, that was completely natural to them. They didn't have to learn it. They, nobody taught them. They just did it because that's who they were. Um, and, and I remember, um, you know, when I started working with Google about 15 years ago, I would turn up um, meetings all around the world and be met with the same response wherever I was in Korea or Australia or China or in California that when I brought ideas to people, they didn't question them. They worked with them immediately. I'd get on the plane and I'd come back home and I'd have a slew of emails of people saying to me, this is what I've done with it. This is what I'm going to do with it. Here's my questions. I never got that in traditional corporate organizations. I got the opposite, which was no action, no responses, and a slightly defensive reaction when you ask them to what they're doing about it. <laughs> So that was a kind of completely different approach. And I love that, um, you know, it, those organizations have their own challenges um, because sometimes they can conflate human progress with technological process and they're not the same thing at all. But um, I, that aspect of it really did resonate with me. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then the diversity piece, even though we know it's super important, it sounds like it makes it more challenging to develop shared mindsets and shared culture. Is, is that what you're suggesting? That it does require more intentionality, more systems, more processes to get it right, the more diverse that you get? I think it, it so the inherent thing that we need to think about here, and, and Google did work hard at trying to understand how to do this and Project Aristotle, their famous piece of research about what makes great teams um, pointed a little bit towards this which is that the most fundamental thing from a mindset point of view that we all need to accept and understand about what creates exclusionary reactions in people is not about um, age and your, your, you know, your culture and all this stuff. It's a much more fundamental common human experience is that when you're with anybody who's different to you, anybody, age, sexual orientation, expertise, culture, you are likely to feel some form of vulnerability. It's just a natural reaction because it's novelty. You don't know how to respond. And so your body creates a metabolic reaction, which is basically preparing itself for some action. <laughs> you just feel your heart rate raising around people who are different to you. And so what that does, if you don't accept or understand you feel that, then that constructs emotions which are fundamentally defensive. When you experience those and you don't accept them, you don't recognize them, then you create an intellectual argument for why that's something that's happening to you. And so that creates a causal chain of people becoming exclusionary, you know, marginalizing, um, diminishing other people. And then their reaction, the other person's reaction to those uh, unconscious behaviors creates all the problems. And there we go around that loop. And so you can break the whole cycle right at its root by teaching leaders to start embracing their feelings of vulnerability and giving them really practical ways to be able to do that. 
And when, when that happens, you know, like a lot of the things that the tools that we're being given, which are really clumsy in operation, are kind of are not necessary. Because if I'm a, you know, a 60-year-old corporate leader who feels a bit vulnerable around people who are 30 years younger than me in a different orientation or, or culture, and I just accept my vulnerability, those people will accept I'm a bit out of my depth in that, and they'll help me. They're more likely to help me. So it, it, there's a simpler way through all of this. We're still talking a little bit about the what, what people need to do is what that mindset looks like, what that behavior looks like. Um, yeah. How do we get there? I mean, and that, that's where where you've done a lot of your research and that, and where neuro, the development and the advancements in neuroscience over the last 10 or 15 years has really yeah. transformed our thinking on this. And, and uh, you know, I want to make sure we touch on uh, the mindset that you believe that we should have as well. Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of top down, bottom up approach to this. So the top down approach, I think, is that the big problem, the meta mindset problem that we face is the, the rise of the zero sum mindset. And um, Harvard have just released um, last month or the month before a major study into this, which shows that this, this mindset, which basically says that one person or one group's success has to always be disadvantaging somebody else or some other group. That has been on the rise uh, steadily uh, for the last you know, few decades, and it's spiked since COVID. Now, what the problem with that mindset, that zero-sum mindset, is that it leads to a set of other mindsets. And one of those is one that, that uh, undermines well-being. Another is... Um, you know, creates polarization in organizations. It, it undermines the whole diversity and inclusion agenda. Um, it also renders organizations vulnerable because it, 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 it's a trade-off. It's all either-ors. It's both basically to value today, value tomorrow. It's customer versus us. It's, you know, this group versus that group. Any zero-sum thinking is binary and it, it creates winners and losers. So I think there's there's a, a need for leaders at all levels to think about what is the, the positive sum mindset, because ultimately all initiatives around well-being, around DNI, around innovation suffer because they become futile um, with that form of, of thinking. And so that mindset is the big thing. Now, from the bottom up, um, understanding how to, what a mindset is is one part of it. Understanding how to build a mindset we could talk about. Um, because there's really great science that helps us to do that. And then how you apply mindsets to solve challenges rather than using just a behavior first approach, using a mindset approach, um, which is really exciting. So, yeah, I, I can dig into any of those kind of areas. Just guide me where you would like me to start. Any of the above or all the above, um, but we only, have a few, <laughs> we only have a few minutes. So let, let's talk about, uh, I, I guess, and this will probably, this should fit into there. One of is and I, I just posted something on LinkedIn just uh, before the show about that. Is is that a lot of what we're talking about is sort of that touchy feely. I mean, this is is how do we get in touch with ourselves? I mean, even yeah. mindset is how do we? I, and this was a huge distinction. A lot of times people are here's the mindset how I see the rest of the world. And if I'm correct, what you're saying is here's the mindset how I am. This, this is yes. my perception. Um, it's not the reality that's out no. there. No. 
So the latest mindset, I'm uh, sorry, the latest research uh, about how the brain works is exactly um, sort of reinforcing what you're saying, which is we construct reality and therefore, you know, we construct emotions, we construct, you know, our perception, we construct, uh, uh, you know, our understanding of how other people see us. And so we have the ability to harness the me underlying mechanisms to our advantage to, to do that better. And when we do that, it influences well-being, it influences our judgment in difficult situations. So, yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, the big challenge for all of us is that we feel, you know, a lack of agency in an uncertain world. So the most important starting point is to take control of ourselves first. We cannot make sense of the world better unless we do that, um, because otherwise we are all kind of moving into some form of victimhood, um, given the situations that are facing us. And, you know, my goodness, they are they're extensive, the amount of uncertainty and things that we could point to as a reason not to do stuff. So start with ourselves. And the number one place is to not lose the connection with our body. Because our, our, our brain isn't the, the total source of how we make sense of the world. Our body is, you know, is the primary sense-making system. And when we cut that information off, we're cutting off a vital flow of data that tells us what you think, what's going on in this, this situation. And, and when we, 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 we um, increase the flow of information in our body, we just become better innovators, better creators, better leaders. And, and what does that, you gave a, a, and I can't remember if I read this or you shared this, but there was a couple uh, experiments that you gave of, and again, I'm going to go back to what, what my, what my idea was with this or what my concept was, is that leadership programs, and I'm, I know you teach in the university, I teach in the university, um, we, we still teach leadership of what it should look like, what people should do. Yeah. And, and, and we, we have that, you know, one course or one article that everybody reads about how one should be more mindful and in, get in touch with themselves. Um, you're advocating and your research is showing it should be completely the opposite. And you shared, um, uh, was it a card, was it about card playing? An example yeah. about how our physical, we think that our mind comes before the body, but the body comes before the mind. You call that physical intelligence. Um, how can you share a little bit more details about that? Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change, adapt faster, and grow on the job. Conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop and easy to digest 5-10 to 10 minute lessons. Managers can sit back and watch employee attitudes shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days. Are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing, never-normal world? Encourage them to show more grit, resilience, adaptability, and unlock their potential? The journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset. Visit aqplusmindset.com or call 484-373-4300. Yeah, so there's a there's a huge um, 
momentum building behind this uh, research into a subject called interoception. And so I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of this because it's, it's, it's uh, really helpful for children. But interoception is the connection that we have with the feelings inside our body. And what's fascinating with this and why there's so much um, you know, attention being focused by researchers around the world is that when we have better interoception, when we have a stronger connection with what's going on inside our body, then that changes our ability to manage ourselves under stress. So there's a causal chain. When you see a snake in the desert, do you feel fear or does your heart rate spike first? And most people might not be sure, but they might say, well, I feel frightened. But actually what happens is your body prepares yourself unconsciously within you know, fractions of a second for fight or flight. So that's the first thing that happens. Your brain then starts to try and make sense of that metabolic reaction by creating emotions. So you construct emotions based on the past, based on the metabolic reaction to make sense of that situation, what to do about it. In certain situations, you might it might create a courage response. I want to catch that snake and put it into this box because I'm collecting snakes. Or, you know, I hate snakes. I need to run as fast <laughs> as possible. So it, in the emotions are not hardwired responses to external stimulus. They are actually a sense-making system. So that, that changes how we think about things. Now, the piece of research that was done by a guy called Dr. Paulus was fascinating, that he looked at people having you know, a spectrum of interoceptive sensitivity, ranging from athletes and ultra-marathoners and elite you know, Navy SEALs and so on through to average people, and found that there was this amazing correlation between... Uh, judgment in high stress situations. So even they're in the brain scanner doing cognitive tests, and then they would put a stressor onto them, which was to reduce the amount of oxygen they could breathe. They were given a, a light to signal this in advance. But at the same time, there's all this is unpleasantness is going on. Being in a scanner is unpleasant. Doing these cognitive tests uh, with scientists watching you is unpleasant. And then you have, you know, your oxygen partially reduced. You can imagine what that does to people. What he noticed was that on the average person, what happened was that the part of our brain, the insular cortex, which mobilizes resources for judgment in stressful situations, anticipated in advance the, uh, the, the, the cognitive task and the stressor and then calmed down. And in the people with high interoception, that, what that allowed them to do was to even outperform what they would normally do cognitively. For everybody else, their brain lags because of this causal chain not being very tight. They're not really aware of what's going on in their body. They panic. The insular cortex goes crazy, never calms down. They can't think. And so they either give up on the task or they get it horribly wrong. So coming back to you know the question, what can we do? Some really simple things I outlined in the book is, it's not about mindfulness as a practice that's good for you. It's actually a training mechanism for your brain to grow the insular cortex. You create a connection between the body through, it's all pulled into the heart, via, channeled up by the vagus nerve into the brain. And after you know, a few weeks of doing this, you will perform better under stress. You will make better decisions in situations of high uncertainty. And that's something that anybody can learn. You don't have to be clever to do this. 
anybody can do it with 10 minutes of, of focus a day. It's brilliant. And, and you anticipated my, what my question was, was, was providing a, a specific example uh, of what we can do for that. So what, what if, from the background here, you can see I mean, one of my focuses is on an adaptability quotient is, is how do you help people become more comfortable with change? And, and, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, grit, resilience, growth mindset, mental flexibility, and, and the process of our learning. So it's, it's what people should do and some of those abilities. Uh, how can, from what, what you're, you're learning, how should our approach to, to helping people become more comfortable with that, how should that change beyond just saying, here's the five skills. If you become proficient in these five skills or abilities, uh, or the reverse side is if we change the environment, if we do provide a psychologically safe space, if we do give the support from ma as managers to the people, that people will just naturally become more comfortable with change. And yeah. I, I think that's naive, you know, that it's happened. I mean, it's a nice model to implement and, and we provide that, but there, there's a missing piece. Is I, I still don't believe that creating the right environment and providing people with the skills that they need allows is going to make them feel more comfortable being uncomfortable yeah i mean you can do an awful lot with those things but what it doesn't do is it doesn't change people's necessarily their own experience of themselves in that situation so you you can walk into a cool incubator where everybody's comfortable with this sort of stuff and you're given all the tools and you can still you know completely and utterly um, fail to be able to adapt into that situation. And uh, I know because I've set up corporate incubators many times within large organizations. And part of this work was really to say this was the missing ingredient in, in that work. You had, you know, well-funded programs um, populated by their smartest people and they didn't work or they, they didn't perform. Um, to the expectation. Then I took a mindset approach to that and I outperformed, we outperformed between five to 10 times the best, the leading accelerators and incubators in terms of return on investment and speed by taking a mindset approach. So I know that works. Definitely want you on our team, John. <laughs> so, so, uh, we're coming up toward the end here. Um, as I said in the beginning, um, we were probably going to go through this and and wonder where the time went. Um, so many more questions and, and people certainly can get some answers in leading in a nonlinear world. Um, but there's one question we always like to close with. I like to close with, and, and this opens up a, a whole other can of worms, is what's something that that you hoped we asked or that we didn't ask? Um, and... Um, you know, how would you, what's the question and how would you answer that? I guess um, the thing that I'm most interested in, because I'm on a 10-year mission um, to to be a driving force of human evolution with our, our team, uh, our purpose. And I suppose it's like, what's the, you know, what's the end game if more people are able to embrace an understanding of their mindset? I think that's the, the thing that's really Baking my noodle every day, you know, that I wake up thinking about that. 
and uh, I've found, I've discovered now just this little formula that when I have a hot bath, because, you know, having two daughters and, and only one bath, we have several showers, but only one bath, that that has been a bit of a privilege to be able to get in there. But when I do, when I have a, a bath and I'm just drifting off, that's when I suddenly ideas pop into my mind and they're all to do with that problem. So, John, we got to ask it, like, is it related to survival? Do you see this in terms of endgame? We have to do this in the advent of AI to be able to survive and adapt and level up. What is yeah. the endgame? Well, I, I think that, you know, that there are a number of very clear zero-sum mindsets around the sacrifice model of our well-being, about our defensiveness to change and polarization that creates the past-present mindset that, occupies many organizations that leads to you know underperformance first and obsolescence and then there's a whole bunch of other things like techno optimism which is brilliant but it's only half the answer human progress is not technological process progress they are they are run in parallel but they're not always correlated as we know with social media the unforeseen consequences of of what's possible isn't always desirable we need a a proper ethics debate around technology um, that isn't veering between Armageddon and it's all okay. <laughs> it's far more complex than that. Today, there is a vast part of the population that would really benefit from having augmented AI co-pilots that would upgrade their ability to be really productive economic units, people who can't spell properly, people who can't, are not literate and can't, um, you know, do basic arithmetic. They don't need to do that if they've got something that in real time could help them because they've got other skills. Use everybody's skills to their advantage. You know, that recent research that came out showing that co-pilots had the most disproportionate impact on the lower performing people, the higher performing performers got about 5% lift and these got 30 to 40% productivity gains. That's a massive opportunity. Let's not waste that. But then there is a whole bunch of, you know, unforeseen consequences, which we have to think through. Yes. So, uh, I, my mind completely wandered to the group of people that's going to say, but what about education? People have to learn math. People have to learn how to do this, which goes, which becomes the other side of the argument. So we talk about that you, you, we have to learn the way we learned before, except that method is actually only a hundred years old. Uh, people learned how to survive and thrive in the past without using some, yeah well some things it's that a we great were most important <laughs> yeah and and i i'm not not disputing that that may be right right but the starting point the fundamental assumption is you have to learn maths to to be successful do you in in the future do you it's like go back you know i don't know hundreds of years ago and go well what skill sets were essential for survival then they're all obsolete now we don't have them so will some of those things that today are part of our societal expectations and education. I mean, if, if you look at, if you look at um, the professors at the moment in universities, one of the biggest challenges facing them is, well, what's the answer for AI? And they're, they're creating a defensive response to their students, scaring them into plagiarism, um, you know, avoiding plagiarism. Whereas most students actually don't want to plagiarize, they, the opposite, but they still recognize they need to use AI. So the more advanced teachers are saying, now this is how to use it and not creating a defensive reaction in their students that they're, they're going to be cheating or caught out. 
because that's completely counterproductive. So that that's a mindset that we need to to really challenge in ourselves is our like assumptions, our defensive assumptions about what was will be. John, you just described what's going on in the Cochrane household right now. Our fourth grader, <laughs> our fourth grader brings home homework, and my my wife is a teacher. That's what she you know she she stays home with the boys, but her training was she's a teacher, licensed teacher. And so yeah. she very much is like, you know, the work's got to be done. And I'm over here popping out my phone with chat GPT on it. And we're like, oh, this stuff is just declarative knowledge. And, you know, he's kind of getting to that point where it's like, yeah, I can just have this do this stuff. And then when you look at it, you're like, what's the stuff we're really teaching them that can't be done yeah. by current GPT models? That's the stuff that's really important in terms of how to make them think. But it looks like it's maybe 5% of the curriculum at best um, when we do that. Not saying that education is not doing a great job, but it's just in terms of thinking about the pace of the future and these things you're talking about, the way we used to view calculators, I'll never forget having graphing calculators for the first time and thinking that those were cheating when it came to taking calculus, that we're just in a whole new ball game here of what GPTs can do in terms of the basics of a lot of the things we ask folks to do um, in, ter in terms of schooling. We could go on and on about that, but that just triggered that for me because that's a current dilemma i guess um that my wife and i are navigating with our kids yeah which, which takes me back to and, and i i know I, I think i talked about this on this show or maybe it was another another interview uh but we it is when i was in college we had to learn how to use a slide rule we had to use and calculators just came out and we were allowed to use it in class but not for the final I have my slide rule, but I have no clue how to use it. And I've survived <laughs> without yeah. without needing it. So yeah. just just one more tool that we probably won't need. So. Well, I guess that you know, we don't want people to switch off parts of their brain. We don't it's the equivalent of GPS, you know, where you drive into the lake because the the you know the sat nav tells you to do it. <laughs> um and I think you know part of what what we need to avoid is becoming um weak uh weakened minds um and so yeah th there's there's a lot to unpack in that but i think uh defensiveness in every system has to be countered with a an open-minded challenge to it because otherwise what ends up happening is that you know, our institutions keep on lagging behind the demands of younger generations. And that's that that's another crisis point that's coming soon. Absolutely. As often as the case is, we, we, we're, we've reached the end of the episode, but the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And we're going to segue now into a different segment. So we've been doing the cognitive portion of the show, diving deep with John on some really deep philosophical uh, beliefs and mindset shifts that need to take place to be successful in the future. John, now we're going to switch to our lightning round. And this is all going to be emotion, feeling reactions to mm. some questions to get to know you better on a personal level. So let's start with this one. Who's your favorite band or maybe a favorite song? New Order. New Order. Nice. Yeah. That's the first time we've gotten that. I don't know that I've yeah. heard them before. So they were born out of a band called Joy Division in the, the late um, 70s. And the sewer, singer, just on the brink of them getting success, committed suicide. So it was a sad story there. And then they, um, New Order, then uh, you know, a 
emerged from that. And they were a band that fused guitar music and electronic music. And um, yeah, the, I grew up with that. And I went to hundreds of their gigs and bumped off school to go and see them and <laughs> almost got chucked out of school for doing it. So I um, love it. But uh, yeah, no, they were, they, they, they're not the best band in the world, but they are kind of my spiritual kind of childhood. Well, best is subjective, right? They're best for you. And what I love about that is you being a change maker, you were following a band and love a band, this change maker that you said was a pioneer in yeah. merging some different genres together. So I love that. How about this one? What would be a hidden talent or skill that maybe folks wouldn't guess about John Gomes? Hmm. I, I tend to be pretty open about everything I do. I wear it on my sleeve. Um, but I suppose it, it my you know, like if I, if I hadn't done what I've done, I would have been a, an artist. Um, I would have been a painter or a musician. Um, I did try at, at the beginning of my life um, at past school. And um, it, yeah, it just took second place. But yeah, that, that would have been my other path if I hadn't been scared. I love that. Do you do you still do any of that stuff in terms of a hobby? Yeah, I've got, I've, I've got a yeah, I've got a recording studio at home that I still make that my kids say is awful music. So yeah. <laughs> I love it. And then how about this one here? Um, if there's one person in the history of the world that you could meet, and it could even be in the future, who would that person be? That's really hard. That's a really hard question. Um, I would like to meet somebody who really thought about the world completely differently than everybody else and, and, and has kind of created the modern world. Um, so I think it'd have to be Freud or, you know, not that they got it, everything right, but somebody just saw something that nobody else had seen before. Uh, and to sit and watch the juxtaposition between the old order and the new. That would be just incredible to have dinner and just watch that playing out and and, and see what it did to people's minds um, in that, the, the shock of the new. I think that would have been just amazing to see that kind of thing. I love that. And uh, Ira knows for me, Einstein is often the answer, and it's for that very same reason, the theory of relativity, who comes up with that. But another one, the way you just described it, John, for me here recently is, whoever thought of the pyramids and how to construct mm -hmm. those at that time without the technology they had, it'd be pretty incredible to figure out how the heck they pulled that off and, and were able to get that vision in place to do that. So I love that answer. Um, what are some ways that folks can get in touch with you, John, to learn more um, about you and the work that you're doing um, in the world around this? Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, inviting that in um well my uh linkedin um newsletter i'm i kind of publish a, a a piece every month um trying to look at the latest things that i'm i'm working on so subscribe to that um we are outside.com is our website um and there are articles and, and posts on that and my book uh leading in a nonlinear world really kind of contains the the core of all the the big ideas and the science behind it and practices that people can pick up immediately. So it's a mixture of kind of uh, the background of all of this thinking, but then just like, how do you apply it in the real world? Perfect. John, I really appreciate you being here, taking the time out. Um, it, we're, we're at the end of 2023. So we wish you a happy holiday and, and a very happy new year. 
Uh, hopefully we can reconnect uh, in 2024 because, as I said, we're, 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 we're at the end of this show, but the, or the, this episode, but the beginning of, a, uh, of an ongoing, very long conversation. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, things are, are obviously going to continue to change. And uh, hopefully we're going to learn more about mindset. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Aaron, Jason. It's a pleasure to, to, to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, glad we got through all our technical challenges as well. So even, okay. even they cooperated. They got interested in blue. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, excellent. Very good. Thanks, John. Thanks very much, John. Take care. Our, this episode might get my vote for the deepest we've gone in terms of how deep the thinking was. Um, yes. Holy smokes. What were some of the mind-blowing new things that you heard John share today that just just kind of really shook you or made you think in a different way? Well, I think John sort of summed it up what his, um, you know, someone he wanted to talk to. And and in some ways I got my wish today. He was like, how do we take this conversation and look at mindset completely differently? Uh, and again, we, we hear, you know, there, there's so much. Last week we talked about an agile mindset. We talked about an adaptive mindset. Uh, we talk about growth mindset. Uh, we we talk, uh, you know, and, and hear John just sort of flipping the scale. And I know we didn't he, he talks about the sufficiency mindset. We didn't necessarily bring that up today. Indirectly, we did. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's just how do we look at mindset completely different than we ever did before? And and in some ways, you mentioned constructing the pyramids, which I've seen. Uh, and it is amazing when you're standing in front of it, you you see what it is, and, the, and until you're standing literally and realize, you know, you're, you're this little, you know, person next to this pyramid. How did they do this so many many years ago? And that's sort of where we almost are with the stage of understanding our brains. How you know we we thought we knew what they were with left brain, right brain, and we had all these things figured out, and now realize none of that's really true. But we're we're almost at that early stage. And I can imagine, you know, 100 years from now, people are going to look back and say, I wonder what they did in 2023, <laughs> you know, how, how, they, how they created this new um, perspective, this, this new way of looking at mindset. So. Absolutely. The other thing John gave me today was a whole new understanding of mindset that I hadn't thought about before and why it's important. His line that he said, where he said, we can't make sense of the world if we can't make sense of ourselves first. I thought that was brilliant. Fundamentally, that's what it comes down to, why mindset is absolutely critical moving forward for success, both for us individually as people, but also collectively organizational behavior moving forward, how we work well together and solve the problems of the future or the dilemmas of the future that you put, Ira. But the other piece too he shared today that just really blew me away, when we're talking about how it can be more challenging with diversity, we know diversity is important. It's a thing that we need to do and that there's so many benefits from it. It's the right way to go about constructing your teams and the way that we think and evolve. But it also means it's more challenging in terms of getting that shared culture in place. And I thought what he shared, you know, why is it? Why is it that diversity can make things more challenging at the outset to get that traction and to work cohesively? And he said it's because of our response that every single human being, the way we react to change or things that are different is vulnerability. And we typically do one of two things with that. 
we run from it or we ignore it. And I just thought that that was very poignant for our times as to why being open and discussing, especially with leadership, why it's important to talk about vulnerability and to be vulnerable is the only way that you can get diverse teams in place and get that shared culture in place with those diverse teams to do extraordinary work is by being able to move past those challenges we have of when we approach things that are, or see things that are different or see people that are different. We have to be able to be open and discuss the vulnerability to move past it. So absolutely brilliant episode today. Um, we want to thank you, Googleization Nation, for tuning in today. Um, like we said at the top, if you haven't liked or subscribed to the show, please do so. YouTube, Spotify, um, Apple, um, Amazon, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, we'd love for you to follow the show. Um, and we want to thank you for being with us and helping us get into the top 1% of podcasts um, in the world. Until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thanks again very much for being part of Googleization Nation. Uh, we will be back next week for the final show of 2023. Uh, hard to believe that we're there already. And until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans. Thanks for watching Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Be sure to listen to the podcast and follow us on YouTube. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.